my first semester at Mississippi State University, I took a class called College Algebra. It was one of those classes, why are y'all laughing? It was one of those classes that had like 200 people in the room. And uh, the one truly great thing that came out of College Algebra was sitting about 15 rows behind me over my back right shoulder, a young lady named Jennifer Hermits. First time I ever laid eyes on her was in that class. And in 2006, she became my wife. The only redeeming thing that came out of college algebra, okay? Let me make that very clear. See, I, I just assumed it was a throwaway class. So many people in the room, and you know, an entry-level class, all the freshmen have to take college algebra. So under that assumption, I just kind of goofed off with my friend who sat next to me. I studied sparingly. And then the first test day came, the first test. And I took a look at that test, and it was like all the blood drained out of my head. I mean, I was reading a different language entirely. And I got a 56 or a 63. It was bad, okay? And I, I mean, I spent the rest of the semester just trying to survive stinking college algebra. But the truth is, that's what tests are for. Tests are the great revealers, aren't they? I mean, how can you really know that you know it unless you can pass the test? See, I assumed that college algebra was just common sense, and then the test exposed my ignorance. It, sh it laid bare the reality for me. Um, and so that's true of knowledge. That's one of the reasons we go to school and we take tests. But it's not just true of knowledge. It's also true of character. I mean, how do you know what kind of person you really are unless your character has been put to the test, right? Uh, how do you know if you're a courageous person unless you've been put in a fearful situation? How do you know if you have any self-control unless you've been forced to stand up to a great temptation, right? It's true of knowledge, it's true of character, but today we're going to see something even more important than those two. We're going to see the issue of faith. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, is going to ask us this question. How do you know the content and the strength of your faith unless you've been tested, unless your faith has been put to the test? That may not be something we often think about, but here in 1 Peter 1, it comes into focus for us, and it deals primarily in the issue, the question of suffering. That's the great test that Peter lays out for us in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 6. And here's what he's careful to show us in just a few short verses today. That the Christian life is less like a flowery meadow, and it's more like a fiery furnace. The Christian life is a life full of trials and difficulty. If you have not figured that out yet, you just wait. You just hold on because it's coming. The Christian life is less like a flowery meadow. It's more like a fiery furnace. A lot of people, myself included, we have this intuitive belief that if I love God, life will go easier for me. Bad things won't happen to me. Or if they do, they won't happen as often or as badly. But that's not the message of the Bible. In fact, there are certain, in a certain sense, becoming a Christian can make life even harder and that's what Peter's audience is experiencing here in chapter 1. So life is full of intense heat and trial, but through it, God forges something glorious. We're going to see that in just four short verses today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. What Randy just read for us, I'll read again in full, and then we'll walk through it. Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. Now, the in this is verses 1 through 5. What we looked at last week, in your great identity and in your great hope, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, 
being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. In this passage, Peter is going to show us three things. He's going to show us the necessity of trial, the testing of trial, and then ultimately the joy of trials. The necessity, the testing, and then ultimately the joy of our trials. What does necessity mean? Well, notice again how he phrases verse 6. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. What we know of Peter's audience, these first century Christians living under the rule of the Roman Empire, that they were mocked and marginalized for their faith. They were imprisoned, some of them. They were slandered. Their businesses were blacklisted. Their, pro- their property was plundered. Some of them were killed, martyred for their Christian faith. And in the midst of all of that suffering, Peter uses a very strange word, necessary. Necessary? That word necessary is significant to our understanding, not just of this text in particular, but of sufferings in general. Because, at least in two ways, Peter says our suffering is necessary. Think about this. The necessity of trial tells us that our hardships are under the will of God. And we have to, we have to really understand this, that our hardships, our suffering, our pain is underneath, it falls under the will of God. We don't suffer as a result of blind fate or bad luck. There are no karmic forces in the universe that when you suffer, you are being paid back by the universe for something bad that you've done in your past. That is not the biblical message. No, Christian suffering takes place under the umbrella of God's sovereign control. And that doesn't mean that God causes evil things to happen, but it does mean that God has the power to decree the direction and the outcome even of evil things. Uh, one of the most famous stories and illustrations of this is the story of Joseph in, uh, in Genesis, the, the great story of Joseph, whose brothers sold him into slavery to Egypt. Everything about his life was completely torn apart. And yet at the end, when Joseph is able to forgive his brothers who have wronged him, he says this famous Line, he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. That doesn't mean that Joseph's experience was not bad. The thing that happened to him was bad. It was evil. But God circumvented the evil intention so that it would not have an evil outcome. God made sure that the evil that was done resulted in God's good purpose. And in that sense, the trial was necessary. It had to happen the way it did, even in the midst of all the suffering that Joseph experienced. It was necessary. It was under God's will. Second, trials are necessary because they bring about God's greater purpose, not just for the universe, but for you personally. And this is hard for us at times to stomach, but we know it's true that much of what you are in terms of your strength, your character, your wisdom has been forged through trial, hasn't it? Most of us grow very, very little when life is easy and comfortable. 
Our greatest times of growth, our greatest times of transformation, of becoming, typically happen when we're pressed, when we're crushed, when things are hard. If you were to walk by a, a butterfly trying to emerge from its chrysalis, one of the great miracles of nature, this caterpillar is becoming a butterfly and it's fighting its way out of its cocoon. If you, out of, uh, out of pity, said, I'm going to help that thing out. It looks really difficult. I'm going to open it up for it just a little bit. See, in the attempt to help it, you're actually going to kill it because it's only through the difficulty of fighting through that chrysalis that its wings are developed well enough that it might fly. And so you're not doing it any favors by helping it. It's the trial that makes it. And for us, the necessity of trial, we have to own up to this reality that we are not God's pets. His, he does not exist, and we don't exist for him to coddle us and make us comfortable and for life to always be easy because then we'd be a bunch of flimsy people. We're only what we are, in part at least, in, in large part, because of the suffering that we've experienced. It's made us what we are. And so Peter says, listen, trials are necessary. That's not what we'd like to hear, but we need to understand bad things don't just happen apart from God's sovereignty. He calls them necessary. And then Peter tells us that it's not just the necessity of trial, it's the testing of trial. And here's where he starts to really grind here and make this an abrasive teaching, at least for me, the testing of trial. Because remember, I talked about how tests are the great revealers. Well, suffering, Peter says, is the great revealer of faith. It's the proving ground of faith. That's in verse 7. Verse 7, he says, so that your suffering, the necessity of suffering, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The, what Peter's saying here is not unique to him. This is not Peter's crazy idea that found its way into the Bible. James says this, Paul says this, Jesus said this, that suffering in this life and suffering in the Christian life is a non-negotiable. We don't get a pass. We don't get an exemption. It is the way it is as God has uh, decreed it. But for the Christian, it's a special kind of pain that we experience in this world. It's a pain that serves as a proving ground, right? And Peter uses the picture of gold, gold going into the furnace, going into the crucible, where only when gold enters into the fire does it become uh, hot enough that it melts down, the impurities then rise to the surface, and that gold can be shown for the purity as to what it really is, the sincerity of what it is. False gold won't do that. False gold is destroyed. Real gold is purified. And, and Peter says, listen, your faith which is more precious than gold, gold which is perishable, your faith has to go through the same crucible. Your faith goes through, in a sense, the same furnace. Life heats us up and melts us down. And I'll say again, if it hasn't already, it will. It's only a matter of time. Life heats us up and it melts us down in a million different ways. And there's this, there's this popular phrase, I'm sure you've heard it, that says, you know, God will never give you more than you can handle. And maybe that's a well-intentioned thing to say, but it's an absolute lie. God constantly gives us more than we can handle. We are constantly burdened in this life with more than we can handle. And only if we're being dishonest would we say otherwise. There are all sorts of things that we go through as human beings that our money can't buy off, 
that our own strength and ingenuity and wisdom, can't, we can't weasel our way through. We've just got to face the bare facts of reality. We're burdened with things that we can't handle. And Peter says, that's when what you really believe gets exposed. Now, I want us to be aware of the specific point he's making here. Because Peter is not saying the exact same things that James and, and Paul said. You know, in James 1 and in Romans 5, it talks about the fact that our trials, our suffering, are for the improving, the strengthening of our faith and our character, right? That's true. Um, it produces a deeper faith in us, suffering that it does that. But, but what Peter is saying specifically in verse 7 is more about the revelation of your faith, showing it not just for what it could be one day, but for what it is in the here and now. How can I know? If my faith in God is true and sincere and legitimate, Peter says suffering will bring it out, verse 7. In, in Matthew 13, Jesus told a series of parables, all very famous. One of the more famous parables, the stories Jesus ever told, was of a seed that was being sown on different kinds of soil. And Jesus explains the parable that the seed is the word of God. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which is sown, which is spoken into, the, into different people, different kinds of people, different kinds of hearts who hear the word of God. And each soil, each heart receives that word a little differently. And I want you, this is from Matthew 13. This is how Jesus describes the third kind of soil, this kind of person. And what Jesus is saying reflects very well on what we're reading in 1 Peter 1. Jesus said, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Jesus is characterizing a certain kind of person here. A person who receives the word with joy but it only lasts a little while. And so and think about this. Rocky soil. You don't have to be an agriculture expert to know that rocky soil is, a, is no good for us. It gives just enough soil to give the impression of life, but then the rocks choke it out. There's no real life there. No root really can take, uh, can take underneath that kind of soil. And so this is a, a, a man, in Jesus' case, or a woman. This is a person. She hears about Jesus, and she receives it with joy. And maybe in our modern context, we might baptize this woman, we'll put her into a Bible study or a small group. Things are going great. But Jesus says she has no firm root. It's only temporary. And so when life heats up, when things get difficult, and the point Jesus specifically makes is because of the word, because of being a Christian, perhaps, things get really tough. There's, there's uh, marginalization, there's suffering, there's persecution. And he says in that case, she falls away. And what, what Peter's saying here, what Jesus is saying, is not, well, this woman lost her faith because of suffering. Jesus is saying she never had it. And suffering revealed her lack of faith, that there was no firm root there. And that we have to make a careful distinction there, because I don't believe you can lose your salvation. But it is possible that we can give the appearance, even the joy, of the thought that God would love me and forgive me of my sins. But if the root's not there, if that, sal if that salvation, that faith is not legitimate, suffering will reveal it. It's only a matter of time. And so here's, let me, let me just bring this home for us, okay, a little bit. Because we all suffer hardship, right? We've talked about this. It's a non-negotiable. There's no exemption. You're not going to get out of it. And so the question becomes, when life does heat us up, 
and melt us down, when life does get difficult, where do we stake our hope? Where do we rest? Where do we find our strength and our comfort when life is really tough? And let me just ask some diagnostic questions for our sake. When things get really tough, when there's great anxiety, great stress, great pain, do you turn to food for your comfort? Do you get drunk? Do you turn to pornography? Do you go spend money on yourself as a way of numbing the pain? Do you, do you binge on Netflix or turn to social media? Do you ball up into, to, to self-pity and just push the world back away from you? Do you do whatever it takes, something, you're going to do something to escape your circumstances, to escape the feeling of pain, to numb it at all costs so that you won't have to deal with it? What do you turn to when life gets hard? See, those are all very natural responses to suffering. But what Peter is saying right here, 1 Peter 1.7, he's saying that's not what faith does. That's not what faith does. It doesn't mean that we waltz through times of pain as if nothing's really happening. We just put on a face and grin and bear it. No. Sometimes we have to limp. Sometimes we just fall upon Christ. But faith doesn't fall upon some temporary means of numbing. It falls upon Jesus. That's the point he's trying to make for us here. Because faith, he says, is more precious than gold, which is perishable. Are you turning, seeking comfort in a perishable thing to numb your pain when you go through hard times? Or are you turning to the one thing that is imperishable, your faith in Jesus? There is something stronger and richer and more stable than anything we can find in this world. And that something is really a someone. It's our hope in the person of Christ. Now, just so you know, I'm not being accusatory here. I, I do this just like anybody else. When things get tough, my wife could tell you. I start to eat unhealthy. I start to drown myself in media. I start to look at things. I, I try to numb myself just like maybe anybody else. Okay? And so I'm challenged here, just like all of us ought to be, that when life gets tough, there's nothing that's going to satisfy me. There's nothing that's going to take the pain away. Only Jesus Christ can be my firm foundation and see me through it. That's true for everybody. And that's what Peter's saying here, that, that faith is proven, it's revealed in the fire. What we really are, what we really believe is shown when the chips are down, when life squeezes the very breath out of us. Where is our hope really found? And all of us have to ask and wrestle with that question because suffering shows us what's really there. Now, I have framed that negatively for the last two or three minutes, but Peter actually frames it positively, okay? So I want, you, I, want to, I want to turn the corner here and think of it positively because Peter is actually commending and encouraging his readers. Look again at verse 7. He says, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is good news for us, not bad news. That when true faith in Jesus is revealed through our trials, there's an everlasting result. It's praise, it's glory, it's honor at the return of Jesus Christ. And I, let me encourage you to say that what, what Peter's talking about here is not great, tremendous faith. That if you could just have great enough faith, strong enough faith, you could overcome anything. Peter's simply talking about genuine faith. He's talking about true faith in a great Savior. All of us, I'm sure, wish we had greater faith, more, more powerful, tremendous faith to face life's difficulties, yes. 
But listen, even if it's a faith that has a limp, even if it's a faith, because there are times when life heats us up so much that we have nothing, we have no resources but just to collapse. Some of you have been there. In that case, it's not, a, it's, not an, it's not a faith that just charges through all circumstances. It's a faith in a great Savior who has been through the fire and who goes through the fire with us. That's what Peter's talking about here. It's genuine faith in a great Savior. And so life, Peter says, is the proving ground of faith. This world is a place that can conceivably take every single good thing away from us. And for some people it does. For some of you, perhaps it has. But the one thing that pierces through every potential trial is a sincere trust in the death and resurrection and the return of Christ. That's our anchor. And that's what the testing for the Christian ought to reveal, that if everything else is stripped away, Jesus remains. And he's the one on whom I put my trust. We need to be challenged and encouraged in that. But then lastly, okay, there's the necessity of trial, the testing of trial, but here's the third thing, the final thing, it's the joy of trial. Maybe most counterintuitive of all here, the joy of trial. Verse 8, Peter says, And though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. And though you don't see him now, uh, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So Peter's audience, uh, though they, they were only a, you know, a few decades removed from the ministry of Jesus, they never met Jesus. They never saw him face to face. These people who lived in Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And, of course, they couldn't see him physically now. He's ascended into heaven. They're suffering right now. They can't see him. But they love him, Peter says. And they trust him in, in, in the midst of their great suffering. Peter is affirming them. He says, you're passing the test. The legitimacy of your faith is being revealed in the midst of your hardship. They are treasuring Christ more than they're treasuring their own lives. They love Jesus more than they love their own pursuits of comfort and ease. They could have renounced their faith and assimilated back into their old culture, and possibly they would have been welcomed back in with open arms. But no, we will face whatever we have to face because our hope, our trust, and our love is rooted in Jesus Christ. And therefore, what they experience is something that I said is counterintuitive. Peter says, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, knowing that the outcome of your faith is the salvation of your soul. So is Peter being realistic here? There is in me this, this inner cynic that always wants to rear its head in verses like this. And think, this, this, this can't be real. This has got to be just religious language. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible in the midst of terrible hardship, persecution, and suffering. Is that real? I mean, because I, I know my own experience that when life gets really difficult for me, the last thing I want to do is rejoice with joy inexpressible uh, without just totally faking it. I mean, we can fake it. But, of course, that's not what Peter means. He's talking about a, a settled reality of the heart, a joy and he says, a joy inexpressible. Is that possible? Some of us would say no. That we've been through the crucible and there was no joy there to be found. But you notice what Peter is really saying here. He's not talking about faking it. He's not talking about some false version of Christianity that just, just powers through difficult times like a gladiator in battle. No. He says, listen, our capacity for joy 
is proportionate to our source of joy. Your capacity for joy, your ability to be joyful in trial is proportionate to the source of where your joy is found. And so he's not giving us this flimsy spiritual encouragement here. Fake your way through it. Fake it till you make it. No, he's not saying don't worry, be happy. He's saying if you put your joy in Jesus Christ, your capacity for joy becomes equal to Jesus himself. If you're seeking joy in any material, temporary circumstance, good luck with that, Peter says, but if you put your joy in Christ, then your capacity for joy will transcend whatever comes your way because Jesus transcends it. And so think about it like this. Let's remove ourselves from the Christian conversation for just a second and just imagine that you're an average person going through a really terrible time. Sickness, cancer, bankruptcy, grief over the loss of a loved one. The, the rejection of someone you love who has turned their back on you. Something really hard. Persecution, suffering of all kinds, right? And you have only what is in this material universe to grant you hope and joy, comfort, peace. And so you would do, I would do what anybody would do. We'll seek the things that we all seek in the pursuit of joy. We're going to seek for money. We're going to seek for relationship or romance or love or achievement. We're going to find something to salve the wound, to numb us from the pain, to grant us the thing that we hope we'll find, like I said last week, at the end of the rainbow. But here's the, the horrible nature of suffering is that suffering one by one picks all those things off. Like a sniper, suffering takes everything away from us one by one. And I don't mean to be a downer, but let's just face reality. All of our loved ones will die, and we will die. Death will come, and death in, that, in the material universe, death wins. Your money will change hands. It will go to somebody, and you have, no con- you have no control ultimately as to how that hard-earned money will be spent. All of your achievements will one day be surpassed and ultimately forgotten. That's, that is the harsh reality of the natural world, right? And so if our, if our pursuit of joy is rooted in anything temporary by its nature, then the pursuit of joy can and will ultimately be removed by suffering. It will be taken away from us, ripped out of our hands, as it were. And so the only way to experience true joy in the face of suffering is to have a joy that surpasses suffering, a joy that transcends death and pain and sin And that joy is the person of Jesus Christ. This is not flimsy religious inspiration. This is a person who has overcome the world and all that is within it. And now our joy can be rooted in him. So Hebrews 12 gives a fabulous little statement on this. Concerning Jesus Christ, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Jesus, for the joy that was set in front of him, endured the most painful suffering humanly imaginable, the cross upon which he was crucified. He scorned the shame and despair and defeat of the cross, and he rose again. That was the joy that was laid out before him. And so there was a joy, even for Jesus, there was a joy that overwhelmed the greatest suffering that he could go through. It was the joy of knowing that he would one, uh, just a few days later, he would rise from the grave. 
He would redeem sinners, unworthy as we are. He would redeem us by his, his uh, sacrifice, and he would bring us eternally into glory with himself. That was the joy before Jesus that gave him every resource he needed to endure the suffering that he experienced. He purchased for us on the cross his joy that we might enter into it. And that's what Jesus said to his disciples. My joy be made fully yours. Enter into my joy. And so when we suffer, we recognize this, that Jesus came to suffer. We should not expect anything better than what God's own son received while he walked the earth. He came to suffer too. We're not entitled to anything better than him. We, we enter the furnace of this world in the same way that Jesus voluntarily came down to enter it with us. That should be an encouragement to us. Life is hard, but Jesus is not aloof. He's not in an ivory tower wishing us the best. He entered into it with us and even surpassed it. And so we recognize, listen, not a flimsy joy that I muster up within myself and pretend it exists, but I place my joy in his joy, the joy set before him, the joy that conquered all things, all sin, all evil, all pain, all death, that through his suffering, he brings us into eternal redemption. He brings us into glory. If suffering is the great test, we need to understand what the gospel says to us, that Jesus Christ has already passed the test. He passed the test for you so that now your faith might rest, not in yourself, not in your circumstances, I hope, but your faith might rest in him. Jesus said, take courage that though in this world you have trouble, I have overcome the world. He passed the test. And because he passed the test, we're able to have joy in the midst of even the very worst things in life because it's a joy that transcends. Uh, we've been studying Peter. I'm going to quote Paul before we close. This is 2 Corinthians 4. The Apostle Paul says this, We do not lose heart. Amen. Perhaps you've lost heart. Listen to the words of Scripture. We do not lose heart. Why not? But though our outer man is decaying, that's the bad news, he says, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day through the furnace. We're being purified, Paul says, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, temporary, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, Paul says, but the things which we cannot see are eternal. You, you do not see him, Peter says, but you love him and you trust him. And therefore, you have an inexpressible joy. The source of our joy, because our source is Christ, the source of our joy is infinitely deeper and infinitely greater than any suffering we can experience in this world. If you've not been tested, your day will come. And if you have been tested, I hate to tell you, it's going to come back around again. Right? And so let's settle this here and now. Where is our anchor set down? Is it in the changing tides of our circumstances? Or is it in the firm roots of Jesus Christ and his joy that he was able to endure even the cross for the joy that we now share as his children? Let's pray. Father, we have nothing at all to bring to the table in a conversation like this. We have exhausted our resources. We cannot avoid suffering. We cannot win. 
Father, if, if it's not something today, it will be something tomorrow. And if not then, it'll be the next day. That, Lord, this, this world is not, you didn't create this world to be our ultimate home. And, Lord, for whatever uh, eternal and mysterious reasons you have, Father, that you did not create us as your pets, but you created us to, to know hardship, to enter the furnace. But, Lord, the, 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 the truth that I pray that we'll, that we'll anchor ourselves in, Lord, is not only that you're with us in the furnace. That's true. But, Father, that you've, you've gone through the furnace, the ultimate furnace, that Jesus Christ on the cross did not just experience suffering from the outside, the pain of suffering, but he experienced the internal weight of our sin, the worst suffering of all, hell. He took it into his own heart. Father God, that we might be forgiven and free, no longer subject to your wrath, Lord, but granted your mercy. And so, Father, where sometimes we suffer and it's our own fault because of the choices we make. And, Lord, you came to pay for that too. So, Father God, would you, would you I, I do pray that you would lessen our suffering. For some in this room, there's physical pain, there's, there's emotional distress, there's relational brokenness, there's financial anxiety. We go through it all. And I, I do pray, Father, that you would bear those burdens well for us, that you would show us, Lord, comfort and mercy that exceeds our, our competency and our, and our adequacy. But Lord, don't protect us, shelter us, and coddle us from pain. And therefore, we end up very flimsy and faithless. Father, um, reveal us, shape us through this, this furnace that, that, uh, that is life. Make us more like Jesus and reveal, Lord, the hope that we have in Jesus. And I pray, Father, that maybe of all the things that make us unique as Christians, this might be the one that will give the world the most pause. That we do not go seeking after band-aids when life gets difficult, but that we have a joy inexpressible somehow because of our hope in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, this is not an easy answer kind of sermon. You, you don't give easy answers. You don't just pat us on the head and send us on our way. You take suffering very seriously, Father, and we thank you for that. You take it so seriously that you'd be willing to endure it yourself so that we might know you and, and experience your grace. So, Father, um, make that our experience today. Even as we encounter various trials, Father, make it our experience today that even if we should fall um, collapse because of pain. That, Lord, we'll collapse and we'll fall upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ. And we can sing, It is well with my soul. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.